Well, good morning, everyone. If this is your first time, or maybe it's your first time in a long time, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and typically I lead worship. And um, this morning I have the opportunity and the privilege to be able to, to bring a message from the Bible. And this morning I want to talk about do-over moments. Have you ever had a time in your life where you needed a do-over moment, whether you did something wrong or said something wrong or did something the wrong way that you wish you could go back and do it the right way the next time. You just knew that if you had an opportunity to have that moment back, you could fix it. Well, I wanted to tell you about a time in my life when I could have used a do-over moment. This was a few years ago. Um, I had a doctor's appointment in the morning, early in the morning, and I was headed back uh, to church. Uh, you know, before you go to the doctor, you can't have anything to eat, so I was hungry. I stopped at Panera to get a bagel. It's a nice Nice fall morning. I have the windows down. I'm riding down in my car, down Kernan towards Atlantic Boulevard. And you know, at this point in time, a few years ago, this, this is when they were fixing or building the overpass of Atlantic over Kernan. So it was all messed up. Uh, traffic was all messed up. I came up to the stoplight, and I'm about 20 cars back from the light in front of me. So I pull up, window down, just enjoying the day, sitting there eating a bagel, I pull up beside a truck that is a plumbing truck, and it's got PVC pipe with the racks down the side. And I'm sitting there, eating a bagel, window down, when all of a sudden a blackbird comes and lands right beside me on one of the PVC pipes on the truck. I don't think anything about it, just no big deal, it's just a blackbird. All of a sudden another blackbird comes, and then another and then another. So I'm sitting there with four blackbirds right beside me with my window down, sitting, watching me eat a bagel. <laughs> so I turn and I look, the light turns green. I'm about 20 cars back, but the light turns green. I look over again, and this time another blackbird comes and lands. But this blackbird was not like the others. This blackbird had been through some stuff. He had his right eyeball hanging out of his head. The other blackbirds just sat there hoping that I might would uh, toss them the bagel, give them something to eat. This blackbird was not about that. He was going to make his move. He was going to get that bagel. So within a split second, the bird tried to get in the car. He flew right at me. Now in my mind, the light was green, so I slammed on the gas. The problem was the car in front of me hadn't gone yet. So I slammed right in the back of a car. I look up. It wasn't just any car. It was a Mercedes SUV GLE. So we pull over to the shoulder of the road. I hop out. I go to the, the driver uh, just to see if she's okay. I apologize. I said, I'm so, so sorry. Are you all right? She said, I'm not sure. My back kind of hurts because I have scoliosis of the spine. <laughs> then she said, I don't know if I can drive, so I'm going to call my husband to come pick me up from his law firm <laughs> because he's a lawyer. So I tell her that I'll call the, the cops, let them come and, um, you know, take care of the situation. So I go sit back in the car and I wait for the police officer to come. He comes, he goes and he talks to the, the lady 
you know, gets her story, makes sure she's okay. And then he comes to, comes to talk to me. So I'm telling him everything, just telling him about the bagel, window down, birds flying, a one-eyed bird trying to fly. I swear to you, the look that he gave me, I am surprised that he did not give me a field sobriety test right there on the spot. It was terrible. So here I am with a ticket, a messed up hood, and I'm thinking all the time how many opportunities I had to do something different that could have changed that situation. Could have rolled the window up when the bird flew. I could have tossed in the bagel. I could have actually paid attention to my surroundings instead of slamming on the gas and hit the car in front of me. And when we need a do-over moment because of ignorance or just messing up or just because, in my case, doing something dumb, it's frustrating or even embarrassing. But when you, have you ever needed a do-over moment because you knew the right thing to do and you just chose not to do it? You knew the choice that you were making was most likely going to end in a bad way, but you still did it anyway? That's where we find Jonah. We know the story of Jonah so far that we've talked about. Jonah heard from God to go speak to the people of Nineveh. He chose to do something different. He chose to go the opposite way, gets in a boat, tries to run from God to go in the opposite direction. A storm comes. Uh, he tells the, the sailors on the boat that if they want to be saved, that they need to throw him into the water to save them from the wrath of God. Reluctantly, they throw him into the water, and instead of God letting him drown, God sends a massive fish to come swallow him, and he spits him onto the shore there, and that's where we find Jonah. That's where we begin Jonah chapter 3. So here at the start of Jonah chapter 3, we find Jonah lying on the shoreline covered and fish vomit surrounded by whatever else was in the fish's stomach. And just imagine what he looked like. Imagine what he smelled like. Imagine how he felt. And then he hears the voice of the Lord. Just when he was at his absolute lowest, he hears the voice of God. And everything he's been through, can you imagine what it must have felt like to hear God's voice again? The relief in his heart, knowing that God would still speak to him, that God would still use him. Look at verse 1. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Aren't you glad that we have a God who calls out to us a second time? Or in my case, a third time, or a fourth time, or a fifth time. A God who doesn't give up on us when we, when we mess up. Aren't you glad that God keeps working with us and moving in our lives when we don't deserve it? And, and sometimes when we mess up, we stay messed up because we just assume that God thinks like we think. We just assume that God wipes his hands with us when we mess up, just like we do with so many other people. We think that sometimes that God is not quick to forgive, and he's, he's quick to hold on to that anger, but he's not. God, this morning I want to say to you that if you've messed up and you think that you've gone too far and God could never want you back, you haven't. Everything you have ever done wrong, he already knew before you ever did it. Before he sent Jesus to pay for our sins, he knew every mistake you'd ever make. And he sent Jesus anyway. So instead of staying away from him because of your guilt, just come back. Listen to his voice because just like Jonah, he's calling out to you. He's calling out to me. He's calling out to us a second time. And here's what he says. 
Look at, chat, look at verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So here's Jonah's chance for a do-over. He messed up. He ran from God. He chose disobedience over service, and everything fell apart. So God comes right back to him with the same mission that he gave to him the first time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah's response Jonah's response when his opportunity for a do-over moment came, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. Verse 3 says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. He kept his word. He obeyed God, and he started on his journey to Nineveh. Now, we don't know how far away he was from the city of Nineveh. We know most likely he had been in the Mediterranean Sea, and so therefore the, the fish would have vomited him up on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. And Nineveh is in uh, what is the present-day Mosul, Iraq. And so the shortest possible distance, if you get on Google Maps and look, I did, it's the shortest possible distance from the edge of the Mediterranean Sea to Mosul, Iraq is at least, is at least 500 miles. So the absolute shortest he could have been journeying was 500 miles. But regardless of how far he had to go to get there, I'm sure the same thoughts that kept him from wanting to go to Nineveh before were still there. I'm sure with every step he traveled, the temptation to run grew more and more. The Assyrians were brutal. They were brutal. So not only was he, did, he want, did he not want to see them delivered by God, I'm sure he was afraid for his own life. He was afraid of what the Ninevites might do to him uh, if they, when he, when he gave this message to, uh, that the destruction was headed their way. Look at verse uh, uh, chapter 3. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And then look at uh, verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city. The wording here in the original language shows the hesitation that was still in his heart. Sometimes in our English, uh, the, the Hebrew language does such a great job of really encompassing and really... Um, bringing out the real emotions of what he felt. Uh, when it says he began by going, the Hebrew speaks here of letting go or releasing. The most basic form of that verb means to pierce or to cut. So even here at the entrance of the city, he's still contemplating whether or not to be obedient. After everything he's already been through, after everything that he's done, you would think this is a no-brainer. He's just going to do what God says, but he's still contemplating whether or not to be obedient. And so here at the entrance of the city, after coming all this way, he's still having second thoughts or third thoughts, I guess. After, after everything he's been through, obedience is still not an easy choice because obedience is not an easy choice. In your life, in my life, obedience is never an easy choice. He still has to fight against the urge to run, but he eventually cuts himself loose of that way of thinking that's holding him back and he surrenders. Look at the rest of verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's the message. That's all we're told he said. 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, there's certainly more to it than that, but I think the point here is that his message was short and direct, and I think the writer of the story of Jonah wanted to emphasize that it was the message of God that made the difference, not the messenger. 
The power was not in the, in the messenger, but rather in the one who sent in the message. And in our lives, when God calls us to be obedient, success isn't dependent on how well we do or how well we perform. It's not based on our ability and skill, but rather simply by doing what he's asked us to do and leaving the results up to him. Look at verse 5. So what happened? The Ninevites believed God. Now, we don't know why they believed the message Jonah sent him. There wasn't anything special about the message itself. And honestly, it seems pretty unlikely that uh, they'd believe a message from a guy who just shows up into town and uh, that they've never seen before. I mean, maybe it was Jonah's appearance. I mean, he had been in the belly of a whale for three days. I'm sure his skin was bleached from the gastric juices. I'm sure he looked maybe like a ghost or a spirit uh, walking through the town. Maybe that's what did it. Um, One of the Assyrian gods, Nineveh was a city in the Assyrian empire. One of the Assyrian gods was called Dagon. He was one of their most powerful gods. In fact, he was called the fish god. I thought this was interesting. And maybe eyewitnesses saw Jonah vomited up on the shore, and they just assumed Dagon tried to destroy Jonah, but Jonah's God delivered him from the clutches of Dagon. So therefore, if his God is more powerful than our God, then maybe we need to listen to what this guy has to say. Um, There are records... um, in, in history of, of natural disasters and, and famines and other things that might have served, served as omens around this very time that Jonah would have probably taken this, this message to Nineveh. There's even record of a, of a total solar eclipse. Maybe everything that had happened up, on, up until this point had them on edge. So maybe that God had been at work from, for some time trying to get Nineveh ready for the message of his prophet. So from God's perspective, the people were in need and the time was just right. But whatever, however God chose to change the people's heart, God did it. And it was all about God. Whatever events he used to orchestrate, people being ready to receive the message that he had for them, he was the one who made the difference. And look at, chapter, look at verse five, the rest of verse five. And their belief resulted in action. The Ninevites believed God a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. You'll see sackcloth all throughout Scripture as a sign of humility, a sign of lowering yourselves. It was, it was a scratchy material made of burlap, and a lot of times uh, people would put that on them to show that they were lowering themselves or humbling themselves. Look at verse 6. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat down in the dust. Now, the empire of Assyria was wicked. They were evil. They were brutal. They had been acting in ways that was just against moral law. The way they would kill and slaughter and torture people were just against things that everyone knew was wrong. And I'm sure they rationalized everything they did. I'm sure the king said to himself that if he wants to keep power, he has to do certain things and act in certain ways and destroy certain people and the ends, justify the means. But now Jonah's message has made it all the way to the king, and he has a chance for his do-over moment, a chance to try and make things right as much as possible. And when his do-over moment came, the king believed, and his belief spurred him to action. Look at starting at verse 7. This is the proclamation 
in he issued in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So he calls for a prayer and he declares a fast. He is taking serious action. And it's as if, it, as if he's saying from the top to the bottom, God, nothing, there's nothing that does not belong to you. From the king all the way to the animals, there's nothing does not belong to you, God. I surrender it all. And look what he says. Who knows? God may yet relent. The king doesn't know for sure if it's going to work. All he knows is that he is that he is at the mercy of God. At this point in history, Assyria was the global superpower. The king of Assyria referred to himself as the king of kings, and in everyone's mind, there was no one higher than him. But the king, by his actions, he's showing that he's no longer in control. By his actions, he's declaring to the whole city and in turn, the whole nation, that there is a king that is mightier than he. And that is Jonah's God, the king of Israel, the God of Israel, the God of heaven and earth. So what's God's response? What's God's response when he sees the king lowering himself, when he sees the king surrendering all to him, when he sees the king declaring, there is a God who is higher than me, a king that is higher than me? Look at verse 10. So when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Some translations use the wording, uh, God changed his mind or, or God repented, but there's no indication that God was giving an idle threat. They were going to be overthrown, but the purpose of overthrowing them was to rid the world of their evil. And when God saw that their evil ways were eradicated through their repentance, there was no need for destruction. And I think it's interesting here that the Hebrew word for overthrow has a double meaning. It can not only refer to being overthrown, but it can also mean turn around. So either way it went, the prophecy of God was going to be true. The Ninevites just made the decision to do the turning themselves rather than have God do it. And that's most likely why Jonah didn't want to go to talk to them to, to deliver this message in the first place. He knew exactly what God was saying. He knew exactly what God was going to do. And I love this part of the story of Jonah because it's such an amazing picture of the way that God can change the hearts of people. In the same way that God brought the people of Nineveh to repentance is the same way that he still works today. Maybe not to the extremes, of course, that we see in Nineveh. I mean, you don't see that very often in the story of Jonah, a fish swallowing someone and taking them where they need to go. I mean, but God still works in, the way, in that way today, not to the extremes, but there still are parallels that we can see there. And think about how it happened in your life. Those of us this morning who have trusted in Christ as our Lord and Savior, those who us who have trusted in God and repented of our sins, think about how it happened in your life, how your life was changed by God. God directed someone to share his message with you. 
And I'm sure there was initially some type of, of pushback, some type of, of hesitation, but that person ultimately chose to obey. And just like with Nineveh, God had most likely been preparing your heart and your life up until that point, preparing you for the message that you'd receive. And when you heard it, you believed and you repented, just like the king of Nineveh. And you lowered yourself and you surrendered, surrendered everything to God. And when we think about the way that God moves to change lives, there are two things that are always present. Two things are always present when God changes a life. The first is the amazing love of God. The first is the amazing love of God. God's love is strong and unconditional, far greater than we can imagine. God's love is forgiving. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the midst of their evil, God reached out to the Ninevites. He didn't wait for them to turn. He didn't wait for them to fix things up. He didn't wait for them to fix their lives. In the midst of their evil, he sent a message to them and he changed their lives. And if he was willing to reach out to someone and people as, as evil as the Ninevites were, surely he's willing to reach out to you. God's love is forgiving, but God's love is also faithful. Lamentations 3, and 23 says this, the faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness, and I love this. His mercies begin afresh each morning. Each morning, his mercies begin afresh. Aren't you so thankful that we have a faithful God that no matter how many mistakes we make, his mercy is afresh each morning. No matter how many how far down the wrong path we may go, his mercies refresh each morning. No matter how far we try to run, God will always be there to forgive us and to bring us back to him. No matter what life throws at us, no matter how hard things may be, God's love will always be there for us. It makes me think of Romans chapter 8. This is one of my favorite sections of scripture, one of my favorite portions of scripture. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39 in the New Living Translation says this, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, nothing, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So remember, no matter how difficult life may be, no matter how many bad decisions that we've made, God's love will never fail us. His grace is sufficient and his love will always be enough. And he keeps calling us back a second time and a third time and a fourth time because his love never stops. And our response should always just be to surrender. So the first thing that's always present in the way that God changes lives is his love. The second is our obedience. Nineveh was saved because Jonah obeyed. None of this happens without the obedience 
of Jonah. God can do anything that he wants. He's mighty and he's powerful and he's able to accomplish whatever he deems necessary. He spoke the world into existence. He, he keeps things going through the power of Christ. So surely he can do anything that he wants, but for some reason, for whatever reason, God has chosen to make his people, us, the conduit through which his grace flows. All throughout scripture, we see it. We've experienced it in our own lives. God almost exclusively uses his people to deliver his goodness and grace. So if God flows through his people, if God's grace flows through his people, is our obedience allowing his grace to flow freely or are we a blockage to his blessing? Are we allowing God's goodness to flow through us in such a way that lives are being changed or his grace being hindered or even polluted by us. Uh, a few years ago, in fact, it was uh, according to uh, my time, time Hop app that shows me pictures uh, from the past that happened each day. Five years ago in October, we went to the mountains. Some friends of ours, Mike and Mandy, had rented a cabin. Uh, their family was going. They invited our family to go along with us. And um, it was an amazing cabin. I mean, it was, it was so great in the mountains of Gatlinburg. It was three levels it had a game room, it had a theater room, it had a, a, a hot tub on a deck that overlooked the fall foliage. It was so great. We had decided the second day that we were there that we were going to go to Dollywood Amusement Park. And I don't know about you, but when I go to an amusement park, I want to get up early. I want to rope drop it because if you get there before everybody else, you beat the crowds and you get to ride the best rides first. So um, we get up, I get up the early that morning, I go to turn on the shower, nothing, no water. I walk over to the sink, turn it on, nothing, not even a drip. I walk out to the kitchen, try to turn on the water, nothing. Mike about that time was walking out and I turned to Mike and he said, there's no water anywhere in the cabin. So we go downstairs to the, to the outside of the basement where the crawl space was and we're looking around and... I'm, if you know anything about me, I know nothing about anything working, fixing. I can sing about it, can't do anything about it. Um, so I'm opening panels, I'm looking here, looking there, trying to find what could possibly be wrong as if I could do anything about it if I did find out anything was wrong. So we go back upstairs, Mike calls the owner of the cabin and she says, oh yeah, you just need to go in and reset the pump relay switch. So Mike goes downstairs, he, he follows the directions that she gives, um, comes back up, still no water. So I decide, well, let me just go check it out just to make sure he did it the right way. Um, so I go downstairs, do the same things again, nothing. We call the owner back and she says, um, well, let me just call a plumber. He'll come out and, and, and he'll come out and, and fix the problem. So um, I'm sitting there, it's, it's nine o'clock, Dollywood opens at 10 the cabin is at least 30 minutes away from Dollywood, and I'm thinking, we're not going to beat everybody into the park. We're not going to be able to beat everybody else to ride that ride that I've been waiting to ride. The plumber finally gets, gets there. He has the thickest, the thickest East Tennessee Appalachian accent you have ever heard in your life. We could barely understand the guy, but I do know this. He walked over to the kitchen Turned on the water, and as best I understood, he said, hmm, ain't got no water. I'm like, I think we got that figured out. 
So um, he said something along the lines, as best we could understand, that um, he would need to go check the well, relay switch, but if that doesn't work, then we probably need a new well pump. Um, and uh, the well pu- the, the, he, could de- he definitely could change the well pump, but the truck that he would need is not here because he would have to pull all the pipes up, and the well was over 400 feet down into the ground because we're on the side of a mountain. Um, but just to go out and enjoy our day as best we can. So um, we go, we get dressed, we head on to Dollywood. We have a great time. Uh, we stay there till probably uh, 10 or so at night when it closed. We went and got something to eat at Chick-fil-A, got back to the, to the cabin probably around 11 o'clock, and they were just finishing up. And as best I could understand, he said the water was safe to drink, but not to let the brown color worry us. As best I could understand. Again, it's pretty hard to understand. But this whole situation happened because a well pump stopped working. It stopped doing what it was made to do. And when the well pump stopped doing what it was created to do, we couldn't get the water that we needed. Now, in our case, even though it seemed like a big deal at the time, it really wasn't. I mean, when we were scooping water out of the hot tub to pour into the, the tank of the, the toilet just so we could flush it, it seemed like a big deal. When I was dunking my head in the hot tub to wash my hair, it seemed like a big deal. But you know, it really wasn't. But what if instead of a single cabin losing its water, what if the pump had gone out at a, at a school or even a hospital? And in this case, it was something minor, but it could have been something huge. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're told this, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And when we don't obey God, when we don't do what we were made to do, we don't know how big of an impact our disobedience can have. Jonah thought, who cares if I don't go to Nineveh? I hate the Ninevites anyway, and I'd rather them be dead. So it's not really that big of a deal if I don't go, if I don't, if I don't go. But because Jonah obeyed, how many hundreds of thousands of lives were saved? And not only the ones in in Nineveh, but the entire region. We mentioned that the king of Nineveh, the king of Assyria, was an evil king. Uh, There's no telling the amount of destruction that had been planned that was now thwarted because the king's heart had been turned, not only for the people of, in, in the region, but probably even Jonah's own people, probably the people of Israel. So there's no telling the amount of lives that were saved because Jonah obeyed. So Jonah's obedience brought blessing not only to the people of Nineveh, but to the people, but to the people uh, of his, his own people as well. So Jonah's lack of obedience, his not doing what he, created to do, he was created to do was driven by hatred and unforgiveness. Jonah hated the people of Nineveh, and probably for good reason in Jonah's eyes. And sometimes hatred can cause us to be disobedient too. Sometimes our disobedience comes when we think we know better than God and when we choose to handle things our way instead of God's way. Sometimes our obedience is driven by fear. We're afraid of what people may say to us or do to us if we live out our faith. They're afraid of what they may say to us or do to us if we try to tell them about God, about Jesus, and the difference that he can make in our lives. Sometimes our obedience is just driven out of laziness. We just don't really want to do what God has told us to do for whatever reason. We don't want to go. We don't want to move. 
But when we choose to disobey God, we miss out on the blessings that God has for ourselves as well as others. In fact, our obedience is the key to unlocking the blessings of God. Obedience is the key to unlocking the blessings of God. The Bible is full of promises of blessings that come from obeying him. From obeying him. Deuteronomy says, follow all the directions the Lord your God has given you and life will go well for you. Psalm 37 says, the Lord takes care of those who obey him. 1 John chapter 3 says, God gives us what we ask for when we obey God's commands. And Psalm 34 says, those who obey him have all they need. Those who obey the Lord lack nothing good. And I could go on and on and on and on. And just as sin always brings about negative consequences for ourselves and for others, obedience always brings blessing. Obedience always brings blessing without fail. So here is the question I want us to ask today. I want us to answer today. How is God calling us to be obedient? Or a better way to think is this. How is God wanting his blessings to be unlocked through me? And it doesn't have to be something huge. It may be. God may be calling you to some huge, massive, monumental task. He may be calling you to go to the mission field. He may be calling you to start a huge, life-changing ministry. But sometimes in looking for huge ways to be obedient, we can overlook the seemingly mundane things that are important and produce just as many blessings. Maybe God is calling you to forgive someone that's hurt you. Maybe obedience for you is restoring that relationship that's broken. And if that relationship can't be restored for, for whatever reason, obeying God for, uh, by forgiving whoever hurt you will allow you to be free of the hate that keeps hardening your heart. If you're a parent, a parent uh, obedience can look like just being present. Bless your kids by being there, really being there. Give them security and stability. Let them know by your words and your actions that you are for them. If you're married, be the best spouse you, you can be. Obedience can look like trying to find ways to honor your partner, putting their needs above your own, listening when they have something to say, making time for them. If you're a student, obedience may be in finding that kid that doesn't have to, anyone to sit with at lunch and just being a friend to them. Just 30 minutes a day being a friend to them because who knows, maybe at some point you'll be able to share the difference that Jesus has made in your life and they may come to trust him as well. Maybe God wants you to obey him by being more faithful to church. Maybe you are hit and miss and you show up only here and there. I can tell you this, when you are here, you're a blessing to me. Because when this room is full and you're singing out and you're engaged in the message, there's always more energy and excitement in the room. And I always leave pumped up. So when you're here, your obedience is a blessing. Maybe God is calling you to obey by giving faithfully. Maybe you don't give at all or maybe you're sporadic in your giving. Our church is funded 100% by our giving. So when you give, you are directly responsible for every life that is changed through our church. Maybe you only give when, when something tugs on your heartstrings, or maybe, uh, but maybe God is calling you to, to make a plan, to give systematically. Because when you have a plan for your giving, you don't risk the chance of God getting squeezed out. When um, Lainey and I got married, one of the first things that we determined in our lives was that we were going to give 10% every month. And I only say that to say this, that nearly 26 years later, 
we have never not had what we needed. We've had everything that we've needed. And honestly, most of what we've wanted. We don't feel like we've, messed, we've really missed out. I mean, sure, it would be nice to have that money each month to spend however we choose. But when I compare how I would choose to spend it versus the lives that have been changed, the missionaries that have been sent, the, the children who might have a meal, it's so much better than what God can do with that money than what I can do with the money. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. So obey God and make a plan to give. And for those that are, already, that are already giving, your obedience is a blessing by helping us reach our community, our state, and our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe God's calling you to serve. Maybe you've been attending for a while and it's time for you to get plugged in. There are places all over this church that need help. You can serve in the guest services area, making people feel welcome when they come to church. And you can serve in the next-gen ministry, actively helping to build the faith of the next generation, serving the video ministry, helping the gospel of Jesus Christ spread beyond these walls. How about the worship ministry? Do you sing? Do you play an instrument? You can help us lead people in worship each and every week and help us grow closer to Christ and spread his message even greater. Maybe God has placed someone in your heart to share the gospel with. Obedience may be telling them about Jesus. Just do it. Just, obedient, just be obedient. Bless their lives by helping them trust in Jesus. Maybe for you, obedience is not just to do something. Maybe for you today, obedience is to stop doing something. Maybe you're doing something that's sinful, and you know it. You've tried to convince yourself that you can handle it, that you can just stop, but you just keep going back to it. Sin, regardless of the size, is bondage. It short-circuits God's plan for us because it keeps us from fully experiencing His will in our lives. So for you, the blessing for you found in obedience is the freedom from the pain that sin is causing you and those around you. Because sin always has consequences, always hurts not only us, but others. Most of the time in ways we can't and may never see. So obedience is a blessing in that it frees you from the pain of sin that keeps you from hurting someone else. I don't know what God's calling you to do, but take steps toward that. Being obedient doesn't mean instantly becoming all that God wants you to be. It, obedience is taking steps, regardless of how small they may seem, toward what he has for you. So I want to ask you, how is God calling you to be obedient today? How is God calling you to be obedient? How is God calling you to bless others by, his, by being obedient to what he's asked you to do? We're about to have a time of response. And during this time, if you already know what God's calling you to do, if you already know what God has laid on your heart, as we sing, just surrender to that. Just commit to obey what God has told you to do. If you don't know what God's calling you to do, you may be saying, I really don't know what he wants me to do. Take this time to pray that God would reveal what he wants you to do today. But here's what I want all of us to do. Whether you are certain of what God wants you to do, whether you have questions, as we sing, here's what I want your response to be. I want you to take a Let's Connect card from the seat pocket in front of you, and I want you to write down how God is asking you to be obedient. If you don't know how he's asking you to be obedient, to be obedient just write, I don't know. And I want you to write that down. Maybe God is calling you to be obedient to share your faith with someone. 
Write that name down on a Let's Connect card. I want us to take those Let's Connect cards and I want us to drop them in the gift boxes in the back on your way out. Why? So that we can pray for you. We can pray for you to help you either to discern what God's will is for your life or to pray that God would give you strength to do whatever it is you need to do or pray, or maybe we can pray with you and help you to determine the direction that you need to go. But we would love to be able to know what God is doing in your life so that we can pray for you and pray with you. And maybe obedience for you today is responding to God's call to you for repentance. He loves you. He sent his son to pay for your sins. All you need to do is, is believe and commit your life to him. If that's something you want to do, let us know. We would love to be able to help you learn more about what it means to trust in Jesus. So whatever God is calling you to do today, whatever he is moving on your heart today, commit to follow him. Use those Let's Connect cards. Let us know what it is so we can pray for you, pray with you, and we can help together as the body of Christ follow God in ways that we could never, ever do alone. Let's pray as the band comes. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for allowing us to, to come into this place today, to be able to sing to you, to be able to sing about you, to be able to thank you for all the amazing things that you've done in our lives. Father, thank you for the message of Jonah, someone who, although he messed up, eventually came around, and through your Spirit's calling, he obeyed. Through your Spirit's calling, he brought your blessing to the lives of so many people. God, thank you that you worked in his life, God, and thank you that you continue to work in our lives, changing us and making us more and more into the people that you have created us to be, God. And I pray that during this time, you'll continue to work in this place, work in our hearts, work in our lives. Tell us what we need to do, God. Impress upon our hearts the things that we need to do and give us the strength and the, encourage, and the courage to follow the directions that you would have us to go. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.